According to William Lane Craig, there are four established facts about the resurrection that any reasonable person must deal with. Number one, Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in the tomb. Number two, on the Sunday following his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Number three, on different occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. Number four, the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead, despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. There are a couple reasons to doubt, one, that Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in the tomb. Crucified victims were not given a good burial, which was part of the punishment, in an ancient world where a good burial was deeply important. Crucifixion victims were left on display, and were eventually tossed into a communal grave. There is no explanation given for why Jesus was an exception to the norm, and the evidence that contradicts the idea that Jesus was buried in a mass grave is incredibly flimsy. It's true that the burial of Jesus is part of our earliest sources, but it's never specified that his burial wasn't what you would expect for a victim of crucifixion. William Lane Craig disputes this by invoking the Apostle Paul, but first let me quote Craig on the burial. Quote, We have four biographies of Jesus by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John which have been collected into the New Testament, along with various letters of the Apostle Paul. Mark is a very early source which is probably based on eyewitness testimony, and which the commentator Rudolf Pesch dates to within seven years of the crucifixion. Moreover, Paul also cites an extremely early source for Jesus' burial, which most scholars date to within five years of the crucifixion. End quote. Paul wasn't writing five years after the burial. He was writing 25 years later. But you'll notice Craig said that Paul cites this early source, which is crucially different. This is essentially the same trick pulled when apologists, including Craig, lead their audience to believe that there were 500 eyewitnesses who saw Jesus after his death, when in reality we have one account of one guy who claims to know of 500 people who agree with him. We don't have 500 eyewitness accounts, nor do we have anything that was written five years after the crucifixion. One of the details missing from Paul's writings, which came before the Gospels, is Joseph of Arimathea. Remember, the first established fact was that Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in the tomb. Paul never mentions Joseph of Arimathea. There's no mention of him until you get to the Gospel of Mark, 30 or 40 years after the fact, not seven years after the fact, which is what Craig implied in that quote. Craig chooses his words carefully so he can mislead while also maintaining plausible deniability, but just for the record, Dating Mark to seven years after the crucifixion is way outside the mainstream even of Christian apologetics. As for the burial of Jesus, when Paul indicates that Jesus was buried in his writings, he may just as well have meant that he was buried in a mass grave, which is far more frequently what happened to crucified criminals when they were eventually taken off the cross. Paul just says that he was buried, and he doesn't say anything that conflicts with the idea that Jesus was buried in a communal grave. Joseph of Arimathea is only found in the Gospels. Paul says nothing about him, and no other early source mentions him. So how can Craig say that it's an established fact that Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in the tomb? Well, it's simple. Joseph of Arimathea was supposedly a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, and they didn't like Jesus. Jesus didn't like them, they didn't like Jesus. So, there you go. I have no idea why Craig or the other apologists he cites think this is a reason, but he says, quote, as a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea is unlikely to be a Christian invention. There was an understandable hostility in the early church towards Jewish leaders. In Christian eyes, they had engineered the murder of Jesus. 
Thus, according to the late New Testament scholar Raymond Brown, Jesus' burial by Joseph is very probable, since it is almost inexplicable why Christians would make up a story about a Jewish Sanhedrinist who does what is right by Jesus. End quote. Almost inexplicable? Just because he was in the Jewish Sanhedrin? I mean, stretch your imagination a little. Christians could have made up the story to show that the Jews had an idea that what they were doing was wrong. Even Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, which supposedly condemned Jesus, even he knew, deep down, that Jesus wasn't guilty and didn't deserve his fate. Maybe he was even sympathetic to Jesus' teaching, secretly, of course, on account of his Jewishness. Christians could have invented this story to make it seem like even members of the Sanhedrin couldn't deny Jesus. There are plenty of stories of Jesus destroying, in all caps, Jewish leaders and making fools of them. The story of a Jew secretly being at least kind of convinced by Jesus fits right in with that tradition. It's like in God's Not Dead 2, when the Muslim girl secretly knows Christianity is true and listens to the Bible on her iPod or whatever. Craig's point about early Christians disliking the Sanhedrin and Jews generally would be like saying, wait, why is there a Muslim and God's Not Dead 2? Christians don't like Muslims. Joseph of Arimathea is obviously sympathetic to Jesus on some level, so it's not hard at all to imagine he was a Christian invention. The Jew who sees the error of his ways is a meme that still exists today. It's played out in Christian movies and in stories Christians tell each other. The stories surrounding the resurrection were altered, expanded, and embellished during the long process of their being told and retold over the decades before the accounts were written. I've already alluded to this, but something I've noticed with William Lane Craig is that you can't take his words at face value. You have to fact check every little thing he says, and I'm not just talking about historical scholarship. It's even true with Bible verses, and Joseph of Arimathea is a great example. Quote, Dr. Ehrman says that perhaps Paul was talking about a communal burial. Not when you look at the four-line formula in 1 Corinthians 15. It is like an outline of the events of the death of Jesus, the burial by Joseph of Arimathea, the empty tomb, and then the appearance narratives. Compared to the Acts of the Apostles, on the one hand, and the Gospels on the other hand, this summary in 1 Corinthians 15 is like an outline, which includes as the second line, Joseph's burial of Jesus in the tomb. End quote. So when Craig says that the burial by Joseph of Arimathea is in 1 Corinthians 15, that is a lie. It's not there. In fact, Paul never mentions Joseph of Arimathea anywhere in any of his writing not in 1 Corinthians 15, or anywhere else. Craig is basically just trying to maintain plausible deniability while intentionally misleading his audience, who he's counting on not fact-checking what he's saying, and about scripture no less, which tells you how much respect he has for his audience. Let me read his quote again. He's trying to maintain plausible deniability, but he gets as close to the line as he can, and possibly crosses the line and just starts lying at the end. Quote, Take the four-line formula in 1 Corinthians 15. It's like an outline of the events of the death of Jesus, the burial by Joseph of Arimathea, the empty tomb, and then the appearance narratives. Compared to the Acts of the Apostles on the one hand, and the Gospels on the other hand, this summary in 1 Corinthians 15 is like an outline, which includes as the second line, Joseph's burial of Jesus in the tomb. End quote. He knows people are going to interpret his words to mean Joseph of Arimathea is attested to in the writings of Paul. In a quote I read from Craig at the top about Jesus' burial, he also implied that Mark could have been written a mere seven years after the crucifixion, which is unusual even for a Christian apologist, but he framed it in his usual style of maximum plausible deniability. He also said that Mark was, quote, 
probably based on eyewitness testimony. Based on eyewitness testimony is another way of saying not eyewitness testimony. So draw your own conclusions about whether or not he's acting in good faith, but my only point is that you can't take his words at face value. Fact number two. On the Sunday following his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. The first thing to point out is that our gospel accounts of the women finding the empty tomb are in conflict with one another. In John's gospel, Mary goes alone to the tomb. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Mary goes with other women. So already, Craig's claim that Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers is contradicted by the gospel of John. If there were other women there, the author of the gospel of John doesn't say so. And the other three Gospels aren't in agreement about which women went with Mary, and how many came along. Also, what did they see in the tomb? A man? Two men? Or an angel? What were they instructed to tell the disciples? Were the disciples supposed to stay in Jerusalem? Or were they supposed to go to Galilee? Which one did the disciples actually do? All of this depends on which Gospel you're reading. Not exactly what you would expect from the inerrant Word of God. The detail that Christians want to talk about is that they were women followers. Apologists like that detail because people were very sexist back then. So if early Christians were just inventing the story, they wouldn't have had women play such a crucial role. Unless they're simply reporting what actually happened, even though it was an embarrassment to many of the early Christians. So we have reason to accept that detail as historical, or so the argument goes. Why else would women play such an important role in the story? Strictly speaking, the story of the women at the tomb is not exactly a feminist tale in our oldest manuscripts. The original ending of Mark, our oldest gospel, is that they're terrified, they run away, and then they don't tell anyone what they saw. Quote, As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. Go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Yeah, how could a sexist person write that the women were, quote, bewildered after being given simple instructions and then failed to follow those instructions after running away in terror? The most ancient manuscripts of Mark conclude there, and it'll even acknowledge that fact in many Bibles. But it's always struck me that apologists seem to be claiming that this story conflicts with the sexism of the time. I don't see that at all. However, in other manuscripts, farther away from the originals, we have the different versions of the woman or women at the tomb, which arguably do put women in a good light and give them a very important role. So let's try to deal with the women followers apologetic a little more thoroughly. The claim that women found the empty tomb is more consistent with historical realities and the gospel narratives themselves. As for the historical realities, preparing bodies for burial was commonly the work of women, not men. So why wouldn't it be women who went to tend to the body? Remember, many of Jesus' disciples ran for the hills after he was arrested, and during his crucifixion. Think about Peter denying Jesus. If they were in hiding since their leader was being executed, or they ran back home to Galilee, which would be over a hundred-mile journey, the women were the only ones left to go to the tomb. They may have come with Jesus and his disciples to Jerusalem, but they didn't fear arrest because of the aforementioned sexism of the time. In Mark, when Jesus is arrested, it says, quote, then all his disciples deserted him and ran away. One young man following behind was clothed only in a long linen shirt. When the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. And earlier in the same chapter, Jesus predicts, quote, All of you will desert me, 
for the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. End quote. If the disciples' scattering was well known, as it seems to have been, there simply wasn't anyone but the women to go to the tomb. So whether or not the story was invented, we shouldn't find it surprising that women were the ones at the tomb, because of the historical realities that women were the ones to tend to dead bodies, and the internal consistency of the Gospels. But for the sake of argument, let's forget both of those things, and forget that the original ending of Mark had the women running away screaming and telling no one that Jesus was resurrected, and let's also forget the numerous contradictions in the different accounts. So what if the tomb was found empty? Even if the second fact is accurate, that the tomb was found empty by women followers, who cares? To quote Bart Ehrman, It is striking that Paul, our first author who talks about Jesus' resurrection, never mentions the discovery of the empty tomb, and does not use an empty tomb as some kind of proof that the body of Jesus had been raised. End quote. If you read closely, you can see that whenever it appears in the Gospels, the empty tomb never converts anyone to follow Jesus. And if you try to imagine that you've never heard of Christianity, and a wild-eyed first-century Christian is telling you about the empty tomb for the first time, the reason is pretty obvious. A resurrection is not the only or the most likely explanation for a missing dead body. The followers of Jesus could have moved the body themselves. The followers of Jesus could have been given bad information about where the body would be taken. After all, the Gospels make clear that the male disciples were hiding out of fear and weren't present for Jesus' crucifixion. Maybe they were just at the wrong tomb. Maybe the body was moved by Roman guards with a sense of humor. There are a lot of possibilities. But the point is that no one came to believe Jesus was resurrected and flew into the clouds because some people went to a tomb and said it was empty. Fact number three, on different occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. As I mentioned, Paul says that Jesus appeared to hundreds of eyewitnesses in 1 Corinthians, and according to Craig, this, quote, guarantees that such appearances occurred. We don't have 500 independent accounts, we have one account, and we don't even have that, really. We have copies of copies of that account that were written decades, if not centuries, after the original, which itself was written 25 years after Jesus' death. And to reiterate, is just one guy saying that he knows of other people who also had personal experiences where they saw Jesus. I would not say that this quote guarantees that such appearances occurred, and neither would Craig if we switched out Jesus and Paul for two other names. There are other sightings referenced by Craig, but honestly it's kind of boring to go down that path. If we're generous and ignore all the obvious flaws with the accounts, what we're talking about, at base, is an argument from personal experience. Remember, the fact that's being argued for is that people experienced appearances of Jesus alive after he died. In its essential form, the argument from personal experience is simply the assertion that the subjective certainty felt by a person regarding an experience they had means that they're correct about some claim they're making. For most of the people I know who have had some kind of religious experience, it's not a question of whether they're lying about their experiences. I believe that they really had the experiences they're describing, and even that it could have been profound and meaningful, but that's not really the problem. There's an extra step after having the experience to begin with, which is having an explanation or an interpretation of your experience. And that's what's really in question. I don't doubt your experience. I doubt that you're able to discern what the source of the experience was just by virtue of having it. For some reason, many people seem to think that because they had the experience, they're also the authority on what could or couldn't have caused that experience. 
In the case of Jesus sightings, I can grant that plenty of people experienced seeing Jesus, but how we interpret or explain that experience is a separate question than whether or not they had the experience. And these sightings occurred in a different time, when people were far more prone to beliefs that would yield that kind of experience. Even if we grant that these accounts are basically accurate, which is a big if, all we have is that various people reported experiences of seeing Jesus. When I was younger, one of my childhood friends vividly saw his father after he died, and neither one of us said, oh, you know, resurrection is probably the best explanation for that. The argument from personal experience shouldn't count as evidence. The processes that create our experiences demonstrably do not always correspond to reality in the way we think they do. If we did take the argument from personal experience seriously, we would also be led to mutually exclusive ideas, including mutually incompatible religions, and open the door to all kinds of absurdities. Why not accept accounts of alien abduction at face value, or accounts of past lives? If we examine all the claims made that are based on the argument, many of them are contradictory, but they're all presenting the same evidence and make the same mistake of conflating the experience with the interpretation of the experience. Number four, the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead, despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. So I'm interested in the last part of that. Did Jesus fulfill Jewish expectations of the Messiah, or did he flout them? Believers want to claim that Jesus fulfilled messianic prophecy, but the Messiah was supposed to be a great warrior who raised an army, liberated the Jews, and established a Jewish theocracy. Jesus didn't do any of that but rather than admit that Jesus didn't fulfill the messianic expectations and therefore must not be the Messiah, Christians say this is further evidence in his favor. They simultaneously claim that Jesus fulfilled messianic prophecy, which proves he was the Messiah, and he didn't fulfill messianic prophecy, which also proves he was the Messiah. In one breath he fulfilled prophecy, which is supposed to be great supporting evidence, then in the next breath he didn't fulfill prophecy, thus proving his legitimacy. So putting their double-think about messianic expectations aside for the moment, why were the disciples convinced? Who would die for a lie? It's often suggested that the followers of Jesus couldn't have moved the body, which would be one explanation for the empty tomb, because they would know his resurrection was a lie, and therefore would be less willing to suffer for that belief. The Gospels depict the disciples as fearful cowards until they believe Jesus was resurrected, so we at least have to explain their change in behavior. Of course, the disciples could have been sincere, just sincerely wrong. Maybe they believed Jesus was resurrected, but unless they're infallible, their belief doesn't mean much to me. Another important point in the who would die for a lie conversation is that the stories of the disciples' torture and martyrdom are extremely dubious. If someone asks you who would die for a lie, you could just ask how they know the disciples died for their Christian beliefs. We don't actually have reliable accounts of the disciples' deaths, or what they died for. As Ehrman writes, quote, the big problem with this argument is that it assumes precisely what we don't know. We don't know how most of the disciples died. The next time someone tells you they were all martyred, ask them how they know. Or better yet, ask them which ancient source they are referring to that says so. The reality is that we simply do not have reliable information about what happened to Jesus' disciples after he died. We scarcely have any information about them while they were still living, nor do we have reliable accounts from later times. What we have are legends. End quote. The earliest accounts we have of the disciples being killed for their Christian belief don't appear until the late 2nd century. Why would this be the case if they were historical? Why wouldn't earlier manuscripts before the late 2nd century have accounts of the disciples dying for their beliefs? 
Did the earlier authors just not think that was relevant or interesting information? And many of these late accounts that we do have are bizarre, and the church doesn't teach them. The earliest account we have of the martyrdom of the Apostle Paul is a story where he's beheaded, which most Christians believe. But after the beheading, his neck starts spouting out milk. Let's grant for the sake of argument, and in spite of the lack of conclusive evidence, that some of Jesus' followers were killed, roughly speaking, because of Jesus. I want to go through some examples of people dying for a lie when they must have known it was a lie. I think it's useful since apologists are implying that this would never happen, and if they could just establish that the disciples were martyred, then the only explanation would be that Jesus really was resurrected, or at least that the disciples believed he was. I'm going to run through a few different scenarios where someone would die for a lie, just to point out these situations do exist, and I'm primarily citing Tracy Harris of the Atheist Experience for these examples. So here are two coercive circumstances that would lead to you dying for a lie, knowing it was a lie. We're going to call this first situation Coercion 1. This would be a situation where someone is being interrogated and they give your name as someone who is running around preaching the resurrection. It is a lie. You know it's a lie. You are arrested, tortured, and questioned. You tell them whatever they want to hear to get them to stop torturing you, as many people do under duress, and as many people even do during long police interrogations. You hope for leniency, but you are executed. You have now become a Christian resurrection martyr who died for a lie. We'll call this next situation Coercion 2. This would be identical to Coercion 1, except that you know you will be executed. You tell them what they want to hear in order to die quickly to end the torture, because they're not going to believe that you weren't preaching, and ultimately you're going to die painfully and slowly if you keep telling the truth, or you can tell them what they want to hear to be more quickly executed, which you deem preferable. You confess and are executed. You have now become a Christian resurrection martyr who died for a lie. Even though it's possible to dispute all four claims to some degree, you don't really need to. You can grant all four of Craig's facts without even beginning to challenge atheism. Sure, a resurrection is an explanation of those four facts, just like aliens are an explanation of crop circles, or Bigfoot's existence is an explanation for a blurry photograph. It's just not the best explanation. It's trivially easy to interpret the four facts in a naturalistic framework. Number one, Jesus was given a proper burial. Sure, why not? His tomb was found empty. How do you even know it was his tomb? Maybe the tomb was empty because they went to the wrong one, for whatever reason. No one told them where it was, or they gave them the wrong tomb address, or they gave them faulty directions. None of that is less probable than a resurrection. Let's assume the early Christians talked to their good friend and benefactor, Joseph of Arimathea, and he confirmed it was definitely the right tomb. Okay, so the body was moved. Maybe by a deranged person who wasn't even a Christian. It could have been moved by one or two people working alone, unbeknownst to anyone else. I personally like to believe that Jewish teenagers with a sense of humor moved the body. Again, nothing I'm saying is less probable than a magical resurrection. Even if Jesus really was buried, and his actual tomb was found empty, the fact is that the empty tomb just isn't a good reason to suppose there was a resurrection. Paul never presents the empty tomb as some kind of proof of the resurrection, and even the disciples didn't believe right after the tomb was found empty. And Thomas definitely didn't believe on the basis of the empty tomb. That's because an empty tomb is meaningless. So what about number three? Some people thought they saw Jesus after he died, or rather, we have deeply flawed ancient accounts that say a handful of members of a cult saw their leader after he died. 
People have seen stranger things, and if third-hand motivated anecdotes are enough for you, then you have about 400 different religions to join. The same goes for fact number four, which is essentially that the original disciples were true believers. Sincere belief on their part doesn't mean anything to me. And besides, I can think of plenty of scenarios where they could have died for something that they themselves believe to be a lie. So I've explained why I don't care if these facts are really facts or not, but you may be surprised to hear that William Lane Craig also doesn't care if they're facts or not. And you've heard my reasons for not caring, so let's hear his. The historical credibility of that event. Of course, ever since my conversion, I had believed in the resurrection of Jesus on the basis of my personal experience. And I still think that this experiential approach to the resurrection is a perfectly valid way to knowing that Christ is risen. It's the way that most Christians today know that Jesus is risen and alive. That the way in which I know Christianity is true is first and foremost on the basis of the witness of the Holy Spirit in my heart. And that this gives me a self-authenticating means of knowing that Christianity is true wholly apart from the evidence. You don't need to dispute any of the four facts to dispute an interpretation of them that involves miracles. But the four facts are highly debatable. It hasn't been established that Jesus wasn't simply left to hang and tossed into a mass grave, let alone that Joseph of Arimathea specifically gave him a good burial. The stories we have of his women followers finding the empty tomb are contradictory, and we don't have hundreds of independent contemporaneous accounts of Jesus sightings after his death. We also don't know what the disciples believed, or how they died, or what they died for. And let's not forget that the people in question lived 2,000 years ago, and were perhaps a little less skeptical and educated than the average person today. The accounts we have are not even consistent. The accounts we have are not contemporary. The accounts are not disinterested. They were written by true believers. Would we uncritically trust a miracle claim a Rajneeshi made about Osho? The events that our accounts purport to describe, bodily resurrection, weird personal experiences, dying for religious beliefs, all these could be critically examined if they happened on my doorstep tomorrow. Even in the present day, you would need more than an argument from miracles and personal experience to present a serious challenge to atheism. The Easter story, however, is made even less credible by the imperfections of the ancient accounts it was transmitted through. The path between the actual events, whatever they were, and the telling of the events we have now is so haphazard and chaotic that we'd be justified in not giving the accounts a second thought. That's all I have for you today. I have two new patrons to thank, Incubus Inc. and Jeremy Nelson. Thank you, Incubus Inc., and thank you, Jeremy. And I have another wonderful person to send a book to, and also to add to the Patron Hall of Fame, Pre-Nifty. Pre-Nifty. Pre-Nifty? Is that like pretty nifty? Pre-Nifty. Um, you'll have to tell me. So I'd like to thank my new Patron Hall of Fame, Jesta, Phil Stillwell, Richard Crossan, Nathan Grounds, and Pre-Nifty. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter, where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you still want a harmless prank to accidentally ignite a global religion, you can find me on Facebook, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>